Irish Nation. Notre Dame finishes off senior day, their last home game of the season, with a massive, resounding thumping of the Boston College Eagles, 44-0. And equally important for Geirish Talk, we've got a really excited announcement. Last week, Mike and I signed up a deal to become an affiliate show of the Pigskin Podcast Network, a growing network of football-related shows ranging from the NFL to college football. We're coming on as their first Notre Dame podcast in the TPPN, the Pigskin Podcast Network. Mike, want to talk a little bit more about this new program we've signed up for? Definitely. So I think from our standpoint, Brett and I are both flattered and uh, honored to to just to be joining a network like this. There are a lot of interesting podcasts on there. So we have access to that community, access to that network. I think it's I think the benefit of that is it's going to help us grow. We're going to gain some knowledge, some expertise, maybe learn a few things from some of our other affiliate podcasts. So, but I do think it's worth calling out that there are a couple other changes that we're we're going to have associated uh, with with this move. So, the content actually will be the same. So that's not going to be any different. The segments we're following the same type of segments that we've been doing in the past. Same total length each week. We're just going to be dividing it up. We're going to be dividing up our show into shorter shows. And this is something we've discussed in the past. So as opposed to just having one episode where we load everything up each week, we're going to be cutting it into two or three shows per week. For now, we're just going to be doing two shows per week. Potentially next year, as we as we move into as we move into next season, we may uh, play with uh, doing doing three episodes per week. But for now, it'll just be two. So we think that's going to help our engagement with our with our listeners. We think that's going to just give us a better presence, a bigger presence. But then we're also as part of this deal, we're we're excited that we're incorporating advertising and and sponsorships into the show. So so this week we're actually going to be adding an ad for DraftKings, which. Uh, which is something that we're excited about. Absolutely. And so as Mike and I move into this next phase of Geirish Talk and you know really help kind of professionalize it and continue to grow what we're doing here on the show, you, our listeners, become even more important. Like us, rate us, tell a friend, make sure you subscribe or follow our show on whatever your podcast streaming is of choice, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to Geirish Talk, please follow us, subscribe us. Get those downloads going. And and again, most importantly, um, tell a friend, tell a family member if, if you like the show, if, if you think it's worthwhile in your Notre Dame fandom, um, please help us continue to grow this network. But with that, our show is going to substantially stay the same. So we're going to recap the Boston College game today. We're going to come back in a couple days and, and do what we would normally do and, and preview USC and also cover um, sort of our third segment of the week Um which which this week we'll be covering kind of volatility and how do we contextualize some of Notre Dame's really big swings, both good and bad, right? All the way from Clemson to Marshall. We're, we're going to dive into that later this week on our second episode. But with that, let's get into the show. Okay. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, is my go-to when betting on football this holiday season. Same game parlays, easy and fast payouts, player prop options, really all the things you can look for when going about my betting needs when I'm looking for a betting app. Right now, new customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. Check this out. Right now, everyone can earn up to a 100% boost with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, place a same-game parlay, 
and you can combine multiple bets like which team will win, player props, point totals, bunch of other options. The more legs you add, the bigger the boost, the bigger shot you have to win big. Download the DraftKings Sports app now. Use code TPPN. That's TPPN. Place a $5 bet on any NFL team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code TPPN. Minimum minimum age of 21 and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. You ready, champ? I'm ready for this my whole life. Senior day at Notre Dame, a snowstorm ensued the stadium. It was snowing so hard in the second half, I couldn't even tell what was snow versus the marshmallow fight in the senior section. And even better than the winter wonderland was the outcome of this game. Notre Dame absolutely lays the hammer on Boston College, comes away with a 44 nothing win. It was so dominating that the advanced metrics we looked at referred to the entire second half of garbage time. So really, the only thing we have to do today is cover the first half that led to Notre Dame with a 100% post-game win expectancy. Look, this one was so one-sided that a lot of times it's kind of hard to go into in-depth topics, Mike, just given, you know, really every answer to every question and topic is just Notre Dame was really good. Um, but with that, you want to start us off maybe on the defensive side of the ball where I thought we were really dominant and, you know, even more so than our offense that had a great game. I thought our defense really came out and won this one from the get-go. Definitely. Really just front to back, total domination. This was a type of game that we haven't really seen Notre Dame have. It's whenever we've had a an opponent like this that really doesn't strike a lot of fear, we tend to play down to the level of competition. So it was great to see Notre Dame finally just totally assert their will and dominate. And we got to start with the defense because the defense in particular was very dominant. I'm going to start with a stat here that I, I had to do a double take with because I, I really haven't seen uh, a Havoc rate this high. So Notre Dame's Havoc rate was 56%. I didn't even know that was possible. I thought it was maybe a mistake. Sometimes when Brett and I are checking these uh, statistics after the game, they uh, they will update them later in the day. Uh indicating some sort of error, but this this stat is actually legitimate. We had a 56% Havoc rate. That means more than half of our plays were disruptive. That means more than half of our plays were either a sack, a tackle for a loss, batted pass, fumble, interception, any of those. Really, a Havoc rate that approaches anything close to that, you're essentially making it impossible for the opposing offense to, to really do anything. And then on top of that, uh, we only allowed a 28% success rate. And as Brett mentioned, uh, the entire second half was deemed garbage time just because we were, we were so dominant. We had essentially ended the game, uh, extremely early because we were just bringing the hammer down on Boston College so thoroughly. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, a 28% success rate for Boston College is really low. Offenses want to be in the high 40s. You know, 28% basically means only one in four plays. Are you staying on schedule and, and really moving the chains? But that also means our defense had twice as many disruptive plays moving Boston College backwards as they did moving forward in a way that would actually generate a sustained offense. Uh, just an absurd formula f- from a defense that I, I just don't remember. You know, we've had shutouts before. I don't remember a shutout where it was never even in doubt whether or not that team had any chance to just like go get a first down. Um, you know, the, the first, um, 
the, the first player that, that has to get called out in this game, Ben Morrison throws a hat trick with three, sorry, Ben Morrison with three interceptions. He was targeted six times, only allowed one catch, his, his only blemish on the day. He's now up to five interceptions on the year. Um, for a true freshman cornerback, he's really emerged as the season's gone on. He's a guy that the coaches were just hyping up in summer camp in a way where it's like, yeah, they always hype up a freshman and a guy that comes in, you know, game ready and, you know, really hit the weight room coming out of high school. And you always kind of question it. Ben Morrison has really come through here um, in a big way. Two picks against Clemson now, three in this game. Um, just outstanding stuff. I thought the other position group as a whole that stood out was the linebackers. Um, JD Bertrand, Maris Leofau, Jalen Sneed got a lot of action. Junior Tuolamaka got a lot of action. Um, we had zero missed tackles in the game. I don't know if I can ever remember looking up a game on, on pro football focus where I've seen zero missed tackles. And with that perfect tackling performance, Notre Dame has actually passed our rival Michigan and is now the number one tackling team in the nation. Um, outstanding stuff by the linebacking group to just consistently show up week in and week out. I thought this game was really a, a perfect culmination of what they've done this season and and now you know help lead a defense that's the best tackling unit in the country. Definitely. We're really seeing that depth at linebacker that we were hoping to see at the beginning of the year. And then you mentioned Morrison. Pete Sampson had a tweet a day or two ago. Actually, I think it might have even been during the game. He essentially referred back to a comment that he had made before where a source within Notre Dame – when Ben Morrison got to campus, that source told him, hey, this this cornerback is going to be the best cornerback Notre Dame has signed in over a decade. And, and we've had some pretty good cornerbacks in that in that time span, Julian Love in particular. Julian, and Julian Love is having a pretty nice career in the NFL right now. So very high praise. He's really come along. At this point, I have extremely high expectations for his career. He's, he's kind of on – He's I, it, you don't want to say Kyle Hamilton level impact, but he is, he is kind of getting close to that level and the expectations for where his career could go are starting to approach that level. So really excited. It makes me feel really good about the secondary moving forward too. Now we mentioned the, the 56% havoc rate. I'm going to move on to the D line. It's, if you're going to have a havoc rate that high, not, not surprising. You're getting a lot of pressure from the defensive line. So in this game, we had four sacks, 17 QB pressures on 31 dropback passes. So if you translate that into a pressure rate, that's 55%. So more than half of, of the dropbacks, we were we were getting pressure on the QB. A good day for reference is something around 20 to 30%. And then, of course, most importantly, Foskey finally gets the career sack record, which is well-deserved. Yeah, I thought in a game where Kaiser played only 14 snaps, he was limited with an injury. Brandon Joseph didn't suit up. Uh, Phil Dracovich, former Notre Dame quarterback who, who transferred, we'll, we'll get to him in a second. Um, he didn't play in this game. He's still out with injury. But it started to look like, gosh, if Boston College is going to have a way to stay in this game, we're a little banged up. If they get their quarterback back, it just wasn't the case. And it was really a group effort. Notre Dame's defense, and, and again, I never like putting too much into pro football focus grades, as we talked on last week's show. Seven players had a grade of 80 or higher, which is really an elite level starter grade. Ten players were 70 or higher. So 17 different players on the defense alone were playing at above average starter level. In total, we had 24 players get 12 or more snaps or basically play more than two drives. So I think especially on senior day, 
getting guys in rotating, getting seniors off the field and a chance to get an ovation as, as they came off the field for the last time, um, stay healthy going into the USC week, uh, a really huge matchup to, to close out Notre Dame season. I just thought that level of depth and rotation, as you alluded to, seeing those snap counts dispersed among really the entire two and three deep of the defense was a really, really great sign to, to see where this program's transcended throughout the course of the season. We kept saying it throughout the year. We've just, the defense has shown flashes. There have been moments where they've looked utterly dominant, and then they've had some big lapses. But it felt like as the season has gone on, we were just getting closer and closer and closer to just having having these totally demoralized, demoralizing for the other team, demoralizing, crushing performances where we just exert our will on it. And, and we've been seeing that more and more. Navy, we kind of throw that one out a little bit. Navy's always a bit of a weird game, but we clearly saw that against Clemson, and then we showed it again against Boston College. So it seems like this is a defense that's, that's really coming along. And earlier in the year, we weren't generating many turnovers. That's changed quite a bit. In this game, we were generating quite a few turnovers. Of course, if you have a 56% havoc rate, it's almost impossible not to not to have a bunch of turnovers. So really encouraging. Uh, I'm glad that the pro football focus grades matched what the data and what I'm what I was seeing. That's not always the case. Of course, it's easier to accept the pro football focus grades when uh, when I think when they're favorable. So <laughs> if it says everyone's playing at an elite level, I'm like, all right, that sounds good to me. Yeah, pro football focus, like yeah, they're great. If it said everyone was performing at like a 60 or a 50, just throw it out. It's trash. When now, you when um, you pitch a shutout, the grade's got to be good. It has to be. If it, I would, if if everyone got 60s in this game, I would be. There's certain we talked about it last week. There's certain stats that are just useful no matter what. But the grades, you always got to take them with a bit of a grain of salt. But if if people were getting average grades in this one, I'd be wondering what game could you possibly be getting elite grades in. So, anyways, fun to watch from the defensive side of the ball. Moving on to the offense, the offense also had quite a good day in the office too. And we got to start with the run game because it's all about that. We had 281 yards. For seven yards per carry, 4.7 line yards per carry. That's, uh, that's clearly the best on the year. That's, that's another eye-popping stat, to me at least. 56% success rate. If you have line yards of 4.7, uh, a 56% success rate, that's not too surprising there. Those two go hand in hand. And again, this is really just in the first half, just because we, we blew them out so, so widely in the first half. And we scored on, on all seven drives, which, which is great, because we, we haven't always necessarily had that same level of success just actually getting points on the board. And I thought within the run game, a stat we talked about a lot earlier in the season, and then it felt like we really got into a rhythm offensively where we've stopped having to make this criticism, but it was runs up the middle. Um, in this game, we only ran the ball up the middle seven times, and those runs were to a tune of three yards per carry. Runs outside the middle, excluding QB sneaks, which, by the way, don't count as runs up the middle, that they're in a different category of sneaks. So all of the other runs to the perimeter average nine yards per carry. So even in the snow, even in bad weather, even when you think, well, jet sweeps or running to the perimeter or shuffle passes, will they really work in the snow? Will you slip? Is going side to side not going to help the defense? Um, look, our offensive line was blowing them off the line of scrimmage. But that was with a ton of misdirection, a bunch of different formations. We had all three running backs on the field at the same time. We got Mike Mayer going on, um, kind of shuffle pass jet sweeps. Um, we did the end-around handoff to Audrey Gestame on the tight end sneak formation that led to a touchdown. So 
we've been, you know, really pressing for more misdirection, more spread a defense out. Like we talk about it all the time with our defense, our defense and really any college football defense struggles with containment, struggles with staying disciplined, struggles with defense events, chasing down guys on the perimeter. And I thought this was a great game against, again, it's Boston College. It's a beat up team. You know, they were definitely ready to get back on that flight and get out of the cold and, and get home. But this was a great, great play calling effort by Tom Reese. Um, I thought he dialed up a really great game, was highly efficient, and, and it really started in the run game. Like you can RTDB and still have misdirection, still have creativity, still have different looks and formations and pre-snap movement. And I, I thought he did a great job balancing this one in a way where we didn't get caught trying to, sh- you know, schlog it up the middle, still played to our strengths, but, but got the ball in our playmakers hands and, and got him on the perimeter. Yep, these rushing stats match up with a lot of themes that we've mentioned throughout the year. We've gotten a lot better. We have gotten a lot better at running up the middle. Earlier in the year, that was pretty challenging for us. And of course, you have to do it. But the data to us clearly show that these outside runs and some of these misdirection plays were pretty effective. So I think this just further hammers that point home. You need a healthy mix, but uh, these these plays in particular were really effective. Yeah, in this now, game, by the way, eighty percent of the runs were to the perimeter. Only 20% were up the middle. I actually think that was one of our biggest mixes of runs to the outside. So agreed, you got to have balance. But seeing that mix kind of shift to the perimeter, I think, continues to play to our strengths. If it keeps working, if we can keep – you keep shifting that balance until you get to the point where it's it's not working anymore. So we'll see. USC, we'll talk about them later. Bit of a leaky defense. So – you know, it'll be interesting to see what, what type of play calls we get. But now moving on to the passing attack, these types of games are always tough to assess just because the weather is not great. It's not, it's not easy. They're not easy conditions to really establish a vertical passing game. So pro football focus said Drew Pine was terrible in this game, graded out in the fifties. This is another example. So on defense, we mentioned this a second ago. We, uh, we were like, okay, hey, pro football focus. Yep, these grades for for the defense make a whole lot of sense. Uh, for Drew Pine, this one seems a little overly harsh. There's there's a lot of context here that I, th- I think we need to mention. So he was 13 of 25 for 156 yards against uh, a not great defense in Boston College. Average depth of target was just six yards. So a lot of short to intermediate throws. We think that's a good thing. The data from our standpoint that we've seen clearly shows that Drew Pine plays a lot better when he has a, a smaller depth of target. So this is this is in line with that. But one thing that we were looking at after the Navy game, so Navy strategy was just a ton of blitzes disrupt Drew Pine that way, and it worked as the game went on. He he, he really struggled to pick them up, especially as Navy was doing all these these big time blitzes. But we were curious to see what Boston College was going to do here, and then they actually they actually didn't really really blitz him that much on, on twenty six dropbacks. He was only blitzed three times, so. Maybe, maybe if they blitzed more, maybe they would have been a little bit more effective, but they didn't come after him. And then another theme that we want to mention is just that theme of play action. So Navy was a bit of an exception. Play action was still effective, but we were actually more effective outside of uh, play action. In this case, we kind of got back on our general trend. So Pine was 7 of 18 on non-play action for just 5 yards per attempt. Not very good. However, for play action, he was 6 of 7 for 10 yards per attempt and a TD. So we have one more game to play, but... Overall, the data clearly shows that these play actions, these play action play calls are really effective, and we haven't hit the point yet where where they're not effective. We can really, I think, we can really uh, increase the amount that we're doing it. So hopefully, hopefully, Tom Reese dials up the more. 
against USC because USC that's going to be a tough game and and we're going to need to generate as many big plays and successful plays as we can. I thought the blitz comment you made was really interesting. You know, listening to the broadcast, Jason Garrett really hyped on this. You know, early on in the game and really even as as the game wore on about how. You know, I think he even kept saying Boston College was bringing blitzes and like they weren't, that they were bringing four and, and it wasn't a blitz. And, and this is one of those where I think watching games live with NBC and ESPN and ABC and Fox commentators, so, some of them really know their X's and O's. Jason Garrett clearly does. He was a long time coach in the NFL. Um, but I think they get caught on a storyline and keep saying it over and over and over again until they make it sound true. And it's just not supported by the data. So. We talked about it. Most teams have blitzed Drew Pine one-third of the time. Navy went and blitzed him two-thirds of the time. And and we can focus on all the sacks in the second half, but we forget that three of his four touchdowns in the first half against Navy were burning them on blitzes too. So other teams haven't blitzed Drew Pine that much because he actually does pretty darn well against the blitz um, where you know he's actually more struggled when teams have dropped eight and kind of made him have to read coverages and, and work through his progressions. We highlighted that on our show this week. I was frankly surprised Boston College didn't blitz a little bit more. I mean, coming only three times after the quarterback with, with, with pressure probably isn't going to get the job done. Um, but I thought the storyline was a little bit overhyped. I'm glad it wasn't a situation in this game. And, and it looks like whatever we had to clean up, we, we've cleaned up although might have been partially Boston College's scheme and, and their play calling on defense. We'll see if that carries over uh, next week against USC. So, Mike, 44 nothing. clearly everything went right. I think we've yet to really nitpick on anything. So maybe we'll round out talking about the game, and then we've got a couple other kind of Boston College-related topics and, and some bull talk. But what did you find most impressive, if you had to pick one or two things, and if you had an area, what's a nitpick in this game? What's one thing that, look, it's 44 nothing, but you always got to have something to coach. You always got to have something to focus on. What would you highlight as, as something that was maybe a blemish in the game? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just rattle off a few things that I thought were impressive. And these shouldn't be surprising. We already talked about how dominant the defense was and, and aspects of the offense that were really effective, in particular the running game. So five of the eight first drives – our, our defense generated turnovers, zero missed tackles. Brett, you mentioned that. To me, that that might actually be the most impressive stuff to me because that's that just shows a really high level of execution. And at times this year, there it's it's really hard in real time to tell like how well we're actually tackling. So it, it's good to kind of get this data after the fact and look. But we we are actually a really good tackling team. And the data supports that. But zero missed tackles that is an absolute clinic. And then the one other thing I'll point out is just a demoralizing milking of the clock. So. Sure, the game was out of hand by a mile, but only three drives in the second half. The first two went for four minutes and 30 seconds, at five, 30, five minutes and 30 seconds, and then and then after that, just it just totally shrunk the game. It was snowing. BC definitely, they definitely just laid down and, and gave up, but I think that bodes well against USC, uh, in, in my opinion. So they were, they clearly, we got them to the point where they just wanted to give up. I don't know if you remember, uh, from five or six years ago, there was a Boston College basketball player. They were having a pretty bad season. I think they were last in the ACC. And he was, he had a totally dejected look on his face in a press conference. And a reporter asked him, so what are you looking forward to for the rest of the year? And then in one of the most sad, uh, 
pathetic responses I've ever seen. He said, I'm really looking forward to just going home and, and eating dinner. <laughs> and then, so that comment, I kind of remember that comment when I was looking at the Boston College sideline during this game. So I think when, when you get them in that frame of mind, you've done something right for sure. And then, of course, one other thing, third down, we were 8 of 13. So situational football, we did really well. Moving on to nitpicking, I think when we have games like this, it's fun to be able to just focus on the nitpicking because these things generally, when you blow out a team to this extent, you're not focusing in on any major glaring issues that are potentially going to send the program tumbling down a hill. These are little areas to tweak that can get you over to the next level. So scoring opportunities, that's the first thing I want to mention. Settled for field goals at times. It's going to be tougher for that to work against USC if if we uh, if we go out and only get three field goals instead of touchdowns. But all that being said, we had 4.9 points per scoring opportunities, and that's actually much higher than what we've had. So a little bit of a nitpick here. We actually, from a scoring per opportunity standpoint, did well compared to earlier in the year, but we still did leave some points on the bar on the board. So that that is, is it is definitely a nitpick. And then somewhat related to this, but it's it's our offense's ability to to go the entire field for seven. So one touchdown drive was 81 yards, and one field goal on a 67 yard drive. But otherwise, we scored on 20. Uh, we went 20 yards, 57 yards, 15 yards, 42 yards. 49 yards and 47 yards on our uh, on our scores. However, it is hard to blame the offense when we're just generating really good field positions. So it's not really their fault. Maybe they would have had some longer drives if we had worse field position. But uh, the field position itself was great. So it's it's just like it's more. This is more maybe less of a nitpick and maybe a little bit more of an open question. And that question is against USC. If we aren't getting that same field position, can we go 80 plus yards multiple times in the game? Can can we answer scores from USC? And I think that remains to be seen. Maybe we can. I mean, if we get great field position every single time, then maybe it won't even be an issue. But I think this is uh, certainly something something worth flagging. Yeah, I thought starting this game off with a 51-yard run and then stalling out in the red zone was a little bit of like, a uh, like here we go again, settling for field goals. And then that kind of stopped. We scored on the next two touchdown drives, um, had another, you know, and then back-to-back field goals after that. But like, it's hard to complain when you score on all seven drives. Um, in the first half, but I agree. I had the same initial reaction at the start of the game of like, gosh, we're really going to have to go get seven points and, and not be settling for field goals. Um, I had one other thing on this game before we get into some bull talk. Um, Phil Djurkovic, former Notre Dame quarterback, highly touted four-star recruit, top 100 recruit in his class, was kind of supposed to be the future, came into Notre Dame, Never really got the starting job. Ian Book, who was a very lowly touted, low-end three-star recruit, won the starting job. Phil transfers, and it was always weird. Um, you know, it felt like there's a little tension there. And he had a very lengthy, unwarranted, like it's not like this was in an interview. It's not like this was a follow-up to any big headline or anything like that, but a very long um, two-paragraph post on Instagram that basically took nonstop shots at Notre Dame. And it caught quite a bit of attention from Notre Dame football circles. And, and I just want to spend at least a couple minutes addressing it. And the first thing is in defense of Phil. And then I got a couple points that are may, maybe more critical of Phil. The first one is the unspoken kind of rumor that he keeps alluding to. He basically spends a lot of time out... Notre Dame has really high ideals and, and claims are going to be a tremendous force for good. And then when you're on campus, you find out with a lot of people that's really not the case. 
And he said it in a really unnamed way. Like he was super ambiguous about it. It was kind of like, all right, if you got beef, come out and say your beef. All of the rumors surrounding what really happened there was he was the quarterback when Chip Long was the offensive coordinator. Chip Long, despite being decently successful, got fired by Brian Kelly um, as offensive coordinator. And pretty much every rumor about Chip Long was that he was a royal jerk to players, um, was unprofessional, would berate kids, would, would just do things that's just by no means acceptable in, in a workplace environment, which when you're a coach, coaching players is your workplace. And Brian Kelly ultimately let him go for partially on-field reasons, but really for all of the off-the-field stuff. And Phil wasn't the only one that transferred. Another great player that comes to mind was Michael Young, um, transferred, wound up going to Cincinnati and had a great career at Cincinnati, made the college football playoff there. And so I think without some of that historical context of, well, why did Phil transfer in the beginning? I think his post probably got taken a little out of context. The fact that he's now posting this three, four years later before what would have been his senior day when he has a chance to play and he's injured and saying he's not even playing, I thought it was a little out of bounds. And at one point, he went in to say that Notre Dame culturally misappropriated Boston for playing the song Shipping Up to Boston as one of our pregame hype songs, and that Notre Dame was really founded by French priests, whereas Boston College was founded by Irish priests. That's only one, like, first off, we're talking about like a rock song that is used in a bunch of football stadiums and, and sports stadiums more broadly. So to say we culturally misappropriate Boston by playing a song called Shipping Up to Boston, like Boston is not some marginalized community. It, it was just a very, very weird take. And secondly, it's bad history. So I just want to spend a couple minutes on Catholic University history. Notre Dame was indeed founded by a French priest, Father Soren, who was part of um, a collection of French priests in the Congregation of the Holy Cross. However, they came to South Bend to start a community um, for educating Irish immigrants to help them learn how to farm and get out of poverty. So while it was started by Catholic priests from France, from the Holy Cross, it was directly aimed to help Irish immigrants. Um, and interestingly, Father Soren's lieutenant was Father Patrick Dillon, who became the second president of Notre Dame when Father Soren went on to start another college. And Father Dillon was an Irish-born American priest. Um, on the same hand, Boston College was founded by Jesuits. Now, the first president was an Irish-American Jesuit, but Jesuits are Italian priests. So it's not like all the priests running around Boston College back then were all Irish. A bunch of them were Italian priests that came over from Rome as part of the Jesuits and basically did the same thing that the Holy Cross priest did. So I thought it was a really weird post. Some of it, I get why he's got a bad history with Notre Dame, and so I hope fans appreciate where Phil Djurkovic was coming from. I still also thought it was a really weird take and not a good look for Phil. I wish him well, but I sure hope that he stops taking pot shots at Notre Dame and just moves on with his with his life and his career. Um, soapbox over on, on that backdrop, but to the extent any fan saw the post or were upset about the post or had thoughts on the posts, that's mine. Mike, I'm curious if, if you have any reactions about what Djurkovic said. Yeah, I mean, I have sympathy for him just because I know Chip Long was a pretty hard guy to deal with. As you mentioned, there were a bunch of transfers. So it's possible that Phil did get a bit of a rotten deal when he was in Notre Dame, but it seemed like his goal with the post was to take a bit of a qualified shot at Notre Dame. 
it seemed like he, again, he was making these kind of vague allusions to just people not necessarily lining up with the values of the university. So it, I think it just, it just seemed unnecessary. He easily could have just made a comment like, this game means a lot to me because this is a school that I, I went to before and I, I really wanted to play for. Obviously it didn't work out. And so I, you know, I, I feel, uh, I feel a connection. He could have just like left it something simple like that. Instead, he went into a lot of detail about, again, like the university, not always being perfect. And it's like, Phil, welcome, welcome to the real world. That's just how, how things are. Notre Dame, you're going to get people who, there are a lot of people who go there who are well aligned with certain values with the university. And then you have some people who are just going there because it's a good school and they could care less about that stuff. So, and you're going to find that pretty much anywhere. You know, there, any place you work at, there are people that you're going to get along with really well, who are really nice. And then there are others who, who that doesn't fit with quite as much. So it also, I think it came across to me as, as a bit naive too. And doesn't help that he didn't get the history right. One thing that he should know as a former student of Notre Dame is that if you go and make a comment about uh, about if you make a comment referencing some history, and if you get it wrong, you can expect a Notre Dame student to audit you and, and correct you if you make a mistake. So a little fact check here by Brett. I think we should get a soundbite that uh, that kind of calls out a fact checker and audit. Maybe we can change Brett's nickname to the auditor. Although I don't know our friend Jim who actually does work on the accounting side of things, he might take offense to that. (laughs) Definitely. And before we wrap up this show, just one more topic we wanted to cover was bowl game options for Notre Dame. It's really something we haven't covered this year. We got bowl eligible early on. A path to a New Year's Six Bowl, frankly, seemed slim to none earlier in the season after a 3-3 and start. Beating Clemson was a huge step in that direction. We're now ranked above a lot of two-loss teams. We're the highest-ranked three-loss team. And there is a path into a New Year's Six Bowl. Mike, do you maybe want to start with the more likely projections of of where some of the prognosticators have us going, and then we can maybe talk about what the path would be if if we try to get into one of the big bowl games? Definitely. So I'm going to start with the most likely scenario. So the first one that I keep hearing getting mentioned is the Holiday Bowl against a high-end Pac-12 team. So that could be someone like Utah or UCLA. The other one is the Gator Bowl, and that would be against a Tier 2 SEC team. So that's a team like Kentucky, Arkansas, South Carolina, potentially. Potentially, we've actually never faced uh, we've never faced Arkansas before, um, or, or Kentucky. Kentucky. Or Kentucky. We were, we're supposed to play Arkansas, but I think it was during the pandemic year that that game got scrapped. I don't. I actually can't remember. It, it got pushed to. A later yep, year. it was the pandemic game, and now we're playing in Fayetteville in 2025, I believe. And I think they're coming back to Notre Dame later in the 2020s. Okay. Well, hey, my hometown is in Memphis, and I'd have to check and see how far a drive that is. But that could actually be be doable for me, flying to Memphis and then drive out to to that game. But so, anyways, uh, I digress there a bit, but. Um, We've actually another point I should mention on the going back to the first bowl game I mentioned the Holiday Bowl. We've actually never played in the Holiday Bowl, so that would be another first for us too. And um, I think one other point I'm jumping around a little bit back and forth, but going back to the Gator Bowl, uh, we haven't been there since 2003, but it is a good location for us from a recruiting standpoint because Florida obviously is a state where there are a lot of really good football players, and it's, it's an area that we've had a bit of a mixed relationship with in the past. I remember times during Brian Kelly's uh, tenure. He just kind of gave up and said, screw it. We're just not going after these Florida kids anymore because they just decommit. Maybe if he had put a little bit more effort into uh, the recruiting process, he would have been able to, to keep them. Although I say that we actually, I think Keon Keeley, he was a, he is a Florida recruit and he, and he decommitted. So, um, but nonetheless, some of, some of the best players we've had over the years have been, have been uh, 
players from Florida. So I think it's it's helpful to us to be able to just get a game down there and and just have a have a strong presence. Just uh just builds up the the level of awareness for Notre Dame and and just makes it easier for our coaches to get out there and and actually um, interact with players and be seen. Although it might I don't it might come during a dead period. I'm actually not 100 percent sure about that, but that's that's something I'd have to check. For sure. And, and, you know, what I'd say too for our Memphis listeners back home, by the way, Mike, I just looked it up. Fayetteville is about a five hour drive from, uh, from Memphis. So if any, if anyone's looking to go to the Arkansas Notre Dame game in a few years, I'd recommend not flying into Memphis with Mike. Um, but we're, we're back in contention for New Year's Six Bowl. We've got one game to play. We're up to number 13 in the AP. I'd imagine we'll be somewhere in that 13 to 15 range when the college football playoff comes out. And there's six games, but it's not like being in the top 12 gets you in one of those games because of different conference tie-ins and group of five rules and the, the college football playoff semifinals play a role. And so one of the unfortunate things here for Notre Dame's position is a lot of the teams right in front of us actually have pretty easy games here in week 13 um, as they close out their season. So even if we beat USC, we'll move up a few spots, right? We would naturally pass USC. It would probably move us past one or two others just by way of having a big win, but likely not for sure jumping all the way up. And, and so I'm just going to tick through some of the scenarios and then maybe, Mike, you can take through some of the kind of most likely path to get there. But the Peach Bowl and Fiesta are both the college football playoff semifinals this year, so we will not get into one of those. We're sort of assuming that's going to be UGA, winner of Ohio State, Michigan, and then the loser's Probably up, but maybe in as a one-loss team, given all of the other chaos that's gone on. Maybe TCU, maybe someone else, but four spots will be gone there. The Sugar Bowl is locked into an SEC and Big 12 opponent, so we can't go there. The Rose Bowl locked in to a Big 10 versus Pac-12 opponent, so we can't go there. Now, if Ohio State or Michigan loses, that slots into the Pac-12. The Pac-12 champ, if it's USC, probably gets into the playoff. If it's not USC, by way of us beating them, um, then the Pac-12 champ is probably going to the Rose Bowl. So those two spots are starting to take shape. And then the Orange Bowl gets nuanced. So it's the highest-ranked ACC team, not in the college football playoff. If Clemson wins out, they're probably in the playoff, which would then lead Florida State getting into the ACC spot. And then the other is an at-large bid among the Big Ten, SEC, and Notre Dame. The problem right now is that staring in front of us is Alabama, Tennessee and Penn State who and LSU so you know one of those SEC teams is going to the Sugar Bowl the other is probably going to the Orange Bowl and will we pass all of those teams it feels unlikely we're going to the Orange Bowl and then that leaves you at the Cotton Bowl Um, that's an at-large bid for both teams so this year almost certainly one of those will be the group of five spot right now that's looking like Tulane so it's really a question if we'd be in a position to maybe get an at-large spot in the Orange Bowl through our conference tie-in um, or our independent tie-in, or if we got an at-large spot in the Cotton Bowl. Mike, what needs to happen for that, you know, to play out where Notre Dame moves up enough spots to, to claim an at-large? Yeah. So first and foremost, we have to beat USC. So if we beat USC, ESPN, their uh, their power index has us. Well, I, I think it said something like we have a 33% chance of winning or it's somewhere in that range. So certainly no guarantee, although I am actually more optimistic, um, in that game than, than their, uh, than their, uh, metric is. But so first, first and foremost, you have to beat USC. And then once you do that, 
To me, it feels like the odds are about 50-50 even. So what we'd need is TCU winning out. So USC, they lose to us, but then they win out and win the Pac-12. LSU loses to Georgia, and then Clemson wins out. So in that scenario, the playoff here is likely Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson, and TCU. So the Sugar becomes Bama or Tennessee versus someone from the Big 12. The Rose Bowl is Michigan versus USC. Orange is the next best ACC team. Brett, you already mentioned this. It's probably Florida State. And that would be against one of those at-large teams, which would be either Bama, Tennessee, Notre Dame, or Penn State. So basically, whoever went to the Sugar Bowl from the SEC, the other one, there's a pretty good chance they might be going to this one. And then the Cotton Bowl, after that, that is two at-large teams. So it would be the best group of five team. And then also against that pool, Bama, Tennessee, Notre Dame, or Penn State. And then, as you mentioned, you could throw LSU in there. Well, cause we don't know exactly how the, how the committee would actually view them. So that's really a toss up if we get one of those spots. If TCU stumbles, I guess you could see a scenario where maybe that helps a little bit more. They take the Sugar Bowl spot unless K-State really jumps us. That seems a little unlikely though. Um, then Bam or Tennessee, they could stumble into that fourth playoff spot. And so that would be one less team for either Cotton Bowl at large or either the, the Big Ten SEC Notre Dame tie into, to the ACC. So it, it's certainly possible. And I said 50-50 that, I don't know if it's actually that high. If we beat USC, it feels like we need multiple things to happen here. Um, so maybe it's a little bit lower than that. But it certainly, it certainly is, is possible. Yeah, it would definitely lead into a position. By the way, sometimes these at-large bids, it's actually where the bull wants to invite you. They will historically track against the rankings and go down the order from highest rank to, to lowest rank. And so if you just say that's how it plays out, although that's not always the case, for example... They try to avoid rematches from the regular season. They try to avoid teams playing the same bowl games multiple years in a row. But if you assume none of that's in play, Bama and Tennessee probably stay ahead of us, and neither will play in an SEC championship game. So they both have games next week, assuming they take care of business against Vanderbilt and um, Bama has Auburn. They're ahead of us. Penn State is a team that I think if we beat USC, they're just in front of us right now. And they're not going to really have another ranked opponent uh, ahead of them in, in their last game. So I think we could pass Penn State. And then if you assume Georgia beats LSU, it'll really come down to whether or not the committee thinks a three-loss Notre Dame team with wins over Clemson and USC and UNC is better than a three-loss LSU team who, of course, has the Alabama win but would have then lost to Florida State. Um, got blown out by Tennessee and, and would have recently lost to Georgia. That becomes really muddled of, of whether or not, you know, they get dinged for losing in their kind of 13th data point. I think that's where the real toss up co- comes into play. Um, stepping back though, it's, it's really interesting that I think getting the headline of playing in a New Year's Six Bowl is always nice, but playing Tulane in the Cotton Bowl versus playing UCLA in the Holiday Bowl or even, you know, maybe a Kentucky in the Gator Bowl. But I think I especially like that Utah-UCLA matchup that those are top 15, top 20 teams. I almost would rather be in the Holiday Bowl. Like that's almost a better matchup. If we could get in the orange, it'd be going up against like Florida State, maybe North Carolina again, depending on how some of these last games play out. And like, is that... Really, like it's almost like sometimes the New Year's Six Bowl, when you get into these conference tie-ins and they pull teams from further back in the rankings, could actually be a worse matchup. So, it's always great to go after New Year's Six Bowls. I think it's always a great accomplishment for a program. I think in a lot of ways, we actually might have a tougher competition, a better game 
if we wound up in one of these non-New Year's Six Bowls. So if you're out there trying to think who I need to pull for, there's a lot of moving pieces here where I think it's hard to say, like, we need this to happen or that to happen. But I do think regardless, if Notre Dame takes care of business, they're going to get a really good bowl game. Even if they don't, it seems like we'd still be a lock for the Holiday Bowl, um, even if, if we lost this week. So I think regardless how things shake out, Notre Dame's bowl path is complicated but likely has a good outcome regardless how things unfold here over the next couple weeks. Yeah, I mean, things are looking so much better than they did a few weeks ago. If you told me the bowl game, if you told me a month ago or five weeks ago what our scenarios were looking like for bowl games, I would have been totally shocked. That's just kind of where we were. So uh, really remarkable that we're even talking about these scenarios. I just have one final thought. We've mentioned that Notre Dame has three losses and we're ranked ahead of a bunch of two-loss teams. To me, that kind of sounds like we're an SEC team. So I think, I think by virtue of that, we should just get the SEC's bowl tie-in and, and go play <laughs> the Sugar Bowl. That seems fair to me. <laughs> they're, they're clearly <laughs> treating us like an SEC team. I don't think that's quite how that works. But with that, that's a wrap for the show. Gyrish. Gyrish.